I'm just introducing the book of Ephesians today, so there's really not a, a particular text that I'll be preaching from. I'm going to be preaching from the entire book of Ephesians. You're probably groaning right now, saying, oh my goodness, we're going to be here till 2 o'clock. We've got one, one who's in favor of that. Good man. We'll try to make up for it. Um, so the book of Ephesians, uh, if you remember last week, I challenged you to read through the book of Ephesians, not just to be on fire, but to be disciplined, um, not just to have an outward expression, but have an inward commitment to the word of God. So I ask you to read the book of Ephesians. I didn't ask you to read the whole book. I asked you to read the first three chapters once uh, a day. I said it would take about 10 minutes. I don't know if I had any takers on that, but if not, you've got this week. You can do it again. And the reason I wanted you to do that is sometimes you don't see the tree because you're overwhelmed by the forest. And if you really look at the forest, you can see the specific tree and how it fits within that ecosystem. I'm using all kinds of different analogies this morning. Um, but the book of Ephesians is a circular letter. I don't think it was addressed just to one church. It was sent to the church at Ephesus, carried by Tychicus, but I think it was meant to go on to other churches in the Lucius Valley, Laodicea and on to Colossae. And I could be wrong, but I think it may be the letter that actually is referred to in the book of Colossians. It says, when you read this letter, send it on to the other churches of Laodicea in that area, and then you take the letter that's coming from them. In fact, one of the oldest canons of the New Testament lists this as the letter that was sent on to the Laodiceans. And in many of the manuscripts, the word Ephesus is left out, and it's almost implied that whatever church would receive this would put their name there because it meant for all these churches. And the manuscript evidence that we have shows that many, many ancient manuscripts of the Greek New Testament says this, that this is the letter to Ephesus. Others, it's just blank. So a lot of scholars believe that this was a circular letter that was sent first to Ephesus. It was copied in Ephesus. And so the word Ephesians came into those, those various manuscripts. And we've got, if you ever wondered about the authority of your Bible, um, it's like no other book of antiquity. We don't have to, to even question the credibility of our New Testament. It's not like the, the game where you whisper in somebody's ear, the Chinese whisper game, and where you purposely say it all garbled up so the guy at the end can't make any sense of it. That's not what happened in the New Testament. These scribes were very meticulous in the way they copied the scriptures, and they became known as manuscript families. And so there was a, a manuscript family in, in Asia, and that's where Ephesus was. There was a manuscript family that... that that was out of Rome, another major church. And then there was another manuscript family in Alexandria where copies and copies and copies and copies were made. There were early translations from the copies. If you didn't speak Greek, if you spoke Ethiopic or Coptic or Latin. So those men were translated into other languages. 
And those, those I, I had no intention of doing this this morning, but I just wanted to, 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 to help you understand that your Bible that you are holding, it is the Word of God, and you can have absolute confidence in it that God has preserved His Word. And what is unique about the New Testament, those copies go all the way back, and some of the fragments that we go back all the way to 80 A.D., and we can compare those manuscripts with another manuscript that's copied in the 13th century. And we can see that the changes are only sometimes minuscule. There may be a comma or maybe a spelling change. And a, a, and a scribe will then correct the spelling change and, and, and say this is what the, the word meant. And the unique thing about the New Testament being different manuscript families, is so let's say example that I, I wrote a, a letter for my class to copy. And this was my classroom, and they, everyone was going to copy Mr. Cross's letter that I put up here on the, on the screen for him. And everyone sat down, so there's 25 kids in my class, now there's 25 copies of the original. Now, those kids aren't going to copy that letter perfectly. Someone's going to cr fail to cross a T, and it might look like an L. Now I've got 25 copies. I can take those 25 copies, and if all 24 of them have the same word, and one of them's got it misspelled, I can say, ooh, this one made a mistake because there's 25 copies. Now you take those 25 copies and you copy them in another area. So they take those 25 copies, and they copy them in North Africa, they copy them in Rome, they copy them in, in, uh, in Africa or in, in, uh, in, in Palestine. And I can take those copies and compare them with another manuscript family and say, you know what? 99% of these are all saying the exact same thing, but this one has got a mistake and it's passed on. And so now we know that that's an incorrect. And so the, the New Testament... The, the, the errors or the mistakes or the, the grammatical commas or a misspelled word or sometimes word orders are changed, 99.9% .9 of it is all the same. And we don't just have several manuscripts. No one, no Greek scholar would ever question whether we have a good copy of the writing of Socrates. But the manuscript evidence for Socrates is staggeringly low compared to the Bible. There are probably seven manuscripts for his writings. For the Bible, we have 24,000. For these Greek, ancient Greek writers, sometimes between the original and the extant copy, there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before we have the, uh, even the first uh, copy of, of what one of these Greek writers wrote. For the New Testament, we have one generation. Mark's gospel was probably written around 50 AD. We have got manuscript evidence that Mark's gospel was written that early because they have found a portion of Mark's manuscript, Mark's gospel, in a mask in Egypt. It was on a mummy's mask, and it was shows us that these copies were early, that the New Testament writers were eyewitnesses of these events. We've got a fragment of the Gospel of John that dates to 95 AD. Uh, but anyway, um, I'm not a textual critic. I don't pretend to be. I like dabbling with it. But all I can tell you this morning is that when you pick up any translation of the Bible, it's going back to the Greek, it's going back to the Hebrew, and our Greek and Hebrew manuscripts agree. In fact, the, 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 the Hebrew is, is really interesting. The, the oldest manuscript we had of the Hebrew Bible was about 1000 A.D., which isn't that old considering how old the Old Testament is. But when they discovered those 
those um, manuscripts in the caves at Qumran, the Dead Sea Scrolls, those were 1,000 years older than the previous older, oldest manuscript. And the entire book of Isaiah is found. And when they took those manuscripts and compared to the ones that were 1,000 years later, they realized that they had not changed one bit. Word for word, letter for letter, the scribes accurately sat down. In fact, scribes were called sophers or sophereims in Hebrew. The word sopher means to count. They got their name a scribe because they would literally count the letters of a page that they were writing or translating or uh, inscribing. And if they came up with a different number, they wadded the thing up and threw it away and they started all over again. These Hebrew scribes knew that they were handling the word of God and they were very, very careful. The same thing is true of the New Testament. We've got um, Greek fathers, Origen, um, uh, Alex, uh, 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 and we've got uh, different church fathers that were in different church headquarters and they copy in their letters to one another things that are written in the New Testament. And so we can see that they are actually writing and we can look at our Gospels, and we can look at our letters in the New Testament and say, you know what? Origen, whoever that church father was who was sending that letter to another church, he is copying it word for word out of a transcript that he had. And those letters are written around 100 AD. So that's how early our Bible was already canonized. And so, you know, when somebody says to you, oh, well, you know, they didn't decide the Bible, they, they threw this book out and they decided to keep that book, that's a bunch of hogwash. You know, the History Channel is really good at confusing people about the Bible. It, it's so farcical. The first canon was in 100 AD where they already decided the 27 books that we have. Um, so there, there's no doubt about our New Testament. It's authentic, authentic, authenticness and its inspiration is unquestionable. And so that's why we preach the Word of God in this church. That's why we believe the Bible. And when Paul wrote this letter, he is writing under the inspiration and the power of the Holy Spirit. Every jot and tittle, Jesus said, in the Old Testament would never pass away until all of the law is fulfilled. So we have a sure word of prophecy. So that was a long introduction that has very little to do with the book of Ephesus, Ephesians. So we might be here till two o'clock, Jeremy. <laughs> um, I'm just going to read the, the first two um, verses and make a couple of observations here. And then I'm going to plunge into the entire book as a whole and try to give you a picture of what this book of Ephesians is all about. So that when we start to looking at the details of it, you will know how those little details fit in the overall whole of the book of, uh, of Ephesians. If you don't do that, you will look at one little phrase, and if you isolate that phrase from the paragraph, and you isolate that from the chapter, you isolate that from the theme of the book, you will come up with a wrong interpretation. And I am convinced that that's what's happened with many of the reformers who came to Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 4, when they said, God chose us in Him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before Him in love. They take that one little phrase and they take it out of that paragraph. Actually, that paragraph is one sentence. It starts at verse 3 and it ends in verse 14. It's one sentence. Then it's all in a chapter. of, And, and in, in the first chapter, the word in him occurs over 20 times. And in that first sentence, the phrase in him or in whom or in Christ appears 10 times. 
So there's something that Paul is wanting to emphasize to these believers. The book of Ephesus, Ephesians, is a book written to Gentile believers to let them know that, yes, they are a part of the body of Christ that is made up of primarily Jewish believers. And so when he says, God chose us in Christ before the foundation, well, I'm running way ahead of myself here, I realize that. I'm already preaching next Sunday's sermon. Um, but I've been reading this, you can probably tell, I've been reading it like I asked you all to do and you didn't. I'm chiding you, just joking. Um, but do read it. I want you to be Bereans. Come to church, be a Berean. The Bereans search the scriptures daily to see if those things were so. Don't just say, oh, you know, pastor said this. I want you to, to own what you believe, okay? And you can do that. It's pretty simple. Just, and when you read those first three chapters, you're going to start to see the big picture. That's what I want you to see. And the big picture is so obvious, and I, I probably don't want to spill too much because I want you to see it for yourself. But um, uh, the, the Ephesians, uh, one of the things that, that is clear in the book of Ephesians is that the church is not some kind of afterthought. Israel just didn't fail miserably. And the law didn't just fail miserably, and so God had to do something else. You almost get that idea when, when people caricature dispensationalism, that there was this dispensation with Adam, and Adam failed, and God had to redo it. And then he, God gave him the law, and they failed with the law, and God had to redo it. That, that's really not a, a fair picture of dispensationalism. Dispensationalism is more the idea that God works with people in a certain economy, a certain way of doing things in a certain time period, but his overall plan is masked or hid as a mystery in those previous time periods. Even with Adam, the period of the church was a mystery that there was going to be a Messiah that was going to come. The seed of the woman is going to bruise the serpent's head or crush the serpent's head, and in the process, it's going to bruise the heel of that seed from the woman. There is a picture of the birth of the church, and that was a mystery to Adam. He didn't know what that meant, but he knew that there was somehow a Savior, a Redeemer is going to come. And then you get to Abraham, and Abraham is told that Abraham, out of your seed, singular, all the nations will be blessed. Well, God was doing a new dispensation, sort of, that he was going to work with one nation, and that this nation was going to bring in this eternal purpose of God to include all nations. And the book of Ephesians kind of opens up your eyes to that. God, you had a plan for all eternity. And that's what it means in Ephesians chapter 4, or chapter 1 and verse 4, that God has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. God always had this plan. It wasn't some afterthought that God says, you know what, they failed here, they failed here, they failed here, now let's try something new, let's try the church. And so the book of Ephesians tells us the church is always something that God has planned. So turn over to Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 9, and we'll just look at this verse just to kind of to, to, to back up what I'm saying with, his, with the Word of God. It would probably be good to be starting with verse 8, because Paul is talking about his role in bringing this mystery to light. Chapter 3 and verse 8, To me, Paul says, who am less than the least of all saints, this grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles. This is the context of this book of Ephesians. 
But now he's talking to the Gentiles, what God is going to do with the Gentiles. It's not just a Jewish religion. It's going to include Gentiles, that I might preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Now that fits into the whole scheme of the book. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be God, even the God, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. And then this little phrase that over and over and over again in the book of Ephesians, in Christ. All spiritual blessings in the heavenly places are found in Christ. And now Paul says, I am preaching this to the Gentiles, the unsearchable riches that are found in Christ, and to make all men see. I like the old King James because it includes, it's got it italicized, but the word all is masculine there. And it's in the plural without the article, so it means every individual. And so in the New King James, it says, to make all. I've been preaching among the Gentiles, the unsearchable reaches of Christ, to do what? To make all men see what is the fellowship of this mystery. What about this mystery? It was hid from the beginning of ages. Hidden in God who created all things through Jesus Christ to the intent... Now, the manifold wisdom of God might be known by the church, the principalities and powers. So what is God doing? He says, I'm going to take this new group of people who I've called out of the world, and I am going to display my infinite wisdom that I've always been doing this. I'm going to include all people in my plan, the manifold, the various faceted, the many varied ways of God's internal wisdom is all coming to fruition through the coming of Jesus Christ to include all people. So that's one of the, the main themes in the book of Ephesus. Ephesians, I keep saying Ephesus. In the book of Ephesians, Paul shows that God always had a special interest in the Gentiles, even though they were not God's elect people in the past. The nation of Israel was God's elected people, but they were elected for a purpose. They were to be a light to all nations. God gave them the law so that all nations would look at Israel and say, what a wise and understanding God you have. They were to be a missionary to all the other nations. And we see that every time that Israel failed on that, God would discipline them chastise them and send them into a captivity and then they would be a witness to those pagan kings who they failed to be a witness to because they'd lost their distinctiveness and they lost their separateness. So that was uh, uh, speaking of Paul's ministry. We just read 3 through 8, so we're not going to read that again. Um, but it was to make all men see what this fellowship of the mystery is. Paul presents himself as the prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of or in the interest of the Gentiles. Look at verse uh, three, or chapter 3, verse 1. He says, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for who? I am a prisoner on behalf or for their benefit for the Gentiles, if you've heard of the dispensation or the stewardship of grace that's been given to me. So Paul feels like, senses that he has this ministry to work into the Gentiles, uh, this, this calling to help them understand this mystery that was in, hidden in Christ. Another major theme in the book of Ephesians is the idea of one new body that had been previously separated, that the Jew and Gentile had been alienated from one another, that the, that the laws, the ceremonies, the sacrificial system 
sort of made a, a two-tier system in the Old Testament, and there was a, a wall of separation where the Gentiles actually couldn't come in and worship with the Jewish believers. And uh, in order to convert to Judaism, you became a proselyte, and you went through all the, the cer- ceremonies, you went through circumcision, you observed the Sabbath, and all those, those rituals, but there was always this idea of a sort of a second-class believer in the Old Testament. And so a theme in this book is that that previous separation has been completely done away with. This separation um, and enmity that was between Jew and Gentile was contained in the laws, the Sabbaths, the feast days, the social and sacrificial systems. But all of these things pointed to Christ. Do you remember when Jesus started his ministry in the Gospel of Matthew? He said, I did not come to destroy the law. I came in order to fulfill all the law, all these ceremonies, all the Sabbath days, rest, all the sacrifices, every lamb that was ever slain on the evening and morning sacrifices, every Passover year, every time that the high priest went into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement, every one of those things were picturing Jesus. And by one sacrifice... He has forever perfected those who are coming to faith in Christ Jesus. And so all those things that separated the Jew and Gentile now has been abolished in Christ and done away with so as to make one new man. All these things pointed toward Christ to make him a, make us one new man. Turn over to Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 14, 15. I will show you this from the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2, 14 and 15. It says, for he himself, notice that reflexive pronoun, it's emphatic, he himself, Jesus, he is, notice the pronoun, our peace. He's talking about Jew and Gentile in this context. He himself is our Jew and Gentile. He is our peace who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity by the law and the commandments contained in ordinance And he created in himself one new man, and from the two thus making peace, that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross. When Christ died on the cross, all those ceremonies, all the Sabbaths, everything was completed and fulfilled. No longer separation between Jew and Gentile. And so that is another major theme of this book. This previous separation has been completely done away with. I want to show you in the the first... um, first sentence of the, of the book of Ephesians, how God did this and when God did it. When does God place us in Christ? Well, in verse 12, chapter 1 and verse 12, we'll see, let, let's start with verse 11. And I want to, to start with verse 11 because you see the phrase, in Him. That's central to this understanding of the book of Ephesians, that phrase, in Him. In Him also we have obtained an inheritance being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory, that we is the Jewish people, we, we apostles, we Jews, we got the gospel first, and we first trusted in Christ. God chose us, Jew and Gentile, in him, and we first trusted in Christ. And now when did the Gentiles become a part of Christ? Verse 13, in him, again, it starts out with in him, 
you, that's you Gentiles, also trusted. When did this happen? After you heard the word of the truth of the gospel of your salvation, in whom, that's again Jesus, also having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. So this whole book is also, the first three chapters is emphasizing that this, this previous estrangement and separation no longer exists. Another thing about the book of Ephesians, it's Christocentric. It's all about what God is doing. His entire mystery can all be summed up in the person of Jesus. By Christocentric, I mean that it's all centered in him as the elect one. Jesus is the elect one before the foundation of the world. Jesus was slain before the foundation of the world. None of us existed before the foundation of the world. Jesus existed before the foundation of the world. He was the chosen one. He was the elect one before time ever began. God knew in eternity past that man was going to need a savior and Christ was that savior before the foundation of the world even existed. Jesus is the preeminent elect one. Isaiah chapter 42 and verse 1 says, Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my elect one, in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him, and he, Jesus, the elect one, will bring justice to the Gentiles. That was Jesus' role. In verses 1 through 13, the word in Christ is used, or in whom, or in him, used over 10 times, and, and it culminates in chapter 3 and verse 6. So turn over to chapter 3 and verse 6 and read that with me, and we'll see how this in Christ, this whole thing about being in Christ, finally culminates in chapter 3 and verse 6. That the Gentiles, this is what God is doing, that the Gentiles should be what? Should be fellow heirs, not just Jews. They should be of the same body, Jew and Gentile. And what also? They are partakers of his promise. And look at this phrase, in Christ. That's where every blessing is found. That's where our election is found. That's where our adoption is found. That's where our redemption is found. That's where our forgiveness of sins are found. It's not some unconditional idea. It's all found in Christ that the Gentiles be of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ, and the means is the gospel. That is the means. It's the gospel. It's through the gospel. So this book is extremely um, Christocentric. It's focusing on Jesus Christ, the elect one, before the foundation of the world. And so I, I believe, uh, from my perspective, as I've studied this book, uh, I think that God is most magnified through His gracious provisions for everyone. That is the praise and the power of His grace. That's how God is glorified. And the first three chapters is really just this doxology. It's this, this praise, this worship, a prayer of what God is doing in Christ to bring this gospel to all people. And that is how God is magnified. I, From my reading and my understanding, I could be wrong, and I will admit that, but the doctrine of election rightly understood is the teaching how God in Christ from all eternity has tasted death for every man. It's not a doctrine of exclusion, but it's a doctrine of inclusion. That God incorporated everybody potentially in Christ, those who believe. The theology of Ephesians 
The second coming is not a pronounced doctrine in this book, but it is mentioned twice, and it's called the time of redemption. Paul describes the the second coming as a time of redeeming. In both instances, the Holy Spirit is linked with this redemption. The second coming is called the time of redemption because that is when the believer receives his full redemption and his complete righteousness. So let's look at a couple verses that show how when Jesus Christ comes back, that is when we have the full redemption of our body, and right now the Holy Spirit is the key for us making it all the way to the end. It's not our ability to perform. It's the perseverance of the saints, but it's also the preservation of the saints by the guarantee that the Holy Spirit is for you and I. It's the Holy Spirit who seals us. So in verses in, in Ephesians 1, uh, 13, we're going to see that we were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Ephesians 1, 13, In whom you trusted after you heard the word of the truth of the gospel of your salvation, in whom, Jesus again, having believed, that was what happened first, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise who is what? He is the guarantee of our our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of His glory. Until the redemption of the purchased possession. That phrase, purchased possession, it means peculiar treasure. In the Old Testament, Israel was God's particular special treasure. He said, you are my special people. You are my treasure. And now he says, Paul is saying that the Holy Spirit has made the church, Jew and Gentile. That was a a radical idea to the Jew. That was a radical idea to the Gentile that now we are the purchased special possession and the people of God and the Holy Spirit is our guarantee until this final work is done. It's also used in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 30. It says, um, and let no communication come out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that may minister grace unto the hearers. And let uh, and no clamor, evil speaking, and malice, and grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you are sealed until the day of redemption. When Christ returns, that is called the day of redemption, and it's the Holy Spirit's guarantee. It also signifies that we are living in the last age. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit was something that was so foreign in the Old Testament. And now every single believer is equipped and empowered by the Spirit of God. And so this is something that that Paul calls the promised spirit. When did Jesus promise this spirit? He promised it all through the Gospels. And in John chapter 7 and verse 37, there was the Feast of Tabernacles. And Jesus said, this feast is really talking about me. When you were walking around in the wilderness and you were staying in these little booths and you were remembering the journey, I was the manna that came down from heaven. I was the rock that was struck that gave the water. And on the last day, the great day of the feast, the high priest would walk through the city of Jerusalem. He'd go down with a pitcher and he'd bring a a pitcher out of the well and he'd walk back to the temple and he would say, out of the fountains of salvation you have drunk. And on that day, Jesus says, I'm going to preempt the high priest and I'm going to do it first. And he got up and he hollers out. He says, hey, anybody thirsty? And they knew the high priest was going to go take that water and walk through the city of Jerusalem. He says, if you're thirsty, don't look to that Old Testament picture. I am that Old Testament picture. 
Come to me, whoever believes in me, out of his belly will flow rivers of living water. Just like when Moses struck that rock, I'm going to promise that if you'll come to me and drink, you will have the Spirit eternally. So the Holy Spirit is the, is the promise. And he says, John, John sort of puts his own commentary on this. This he spoke concerning the Spirit. Those who believing would receive, for Jesus had not yet been glorified. At the day of Pentecost, you and I have entered into this new era we are living in the last time, and you and I have an anointing from the Holy One so that we need anybody teach you. doesn't mean you don't need pastors and teachers to guide and direct you through the Bible and Scripture, but it's what it's saying is you can sit here and you can t internalize this, and the Holy Spirit will make this true and real in your life. And if I'm incorrect, the Holy Spirit will show you, and then you can come and sh enlighten me because we all have the Holy Spirit to sharpen one another. Ephesians chapter 4 and 1 Paul says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, now to walk worthy of the calling, uh, which you are called with all lowliness and meekness and long suffering." So another prominent theme in this book is that the church is likened into a body, the body or a building. This is all through the first three chapters. A building was the temple. It's interwoven with the concept of the new man, which now becomes the temple and the dwelling place of the Spirit of God. So again, he's telling the Jew and Gentile, you don't go to the tabernacles. You don't go to the temple. All of that has been done. God's dwelling place is no longer in buildings made by hands. God is now inhabiting his corporate people called the church, Jew and Gentile. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2, and we'll read verses 19 to the end of the chapter. He's talking to the Gentiles here. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers. You're not outside of the covenant anymore. You're not a stranger. You're not a, a sojourner that, that's outside of the nation of Israel. You're no longer a foreigner. But what are you? You are a fellow citizen with the saints, with God's sanctified people. You're members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone, chief cornerstone, in whom, talking about Jesus again, the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom, Christ again, in whom, you see all over in the book of Ephesians, in whom you, Gentiles, also being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. This whole new picture, one new man, one new body, one new temple, God's dwelling in Jew and Gentile equally. The purpose of this book, the purpose of this book is found in the very way that is written. There's three chapters that Paul devotes to theology. Chapters 1, 2, and 3, it's all about theology. Chapters 4, 5, and 6, it's all about practical application. He gets to chapter 4 and he says, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord, I beseech you, now walk worthy of the calling by which you've been called with all lowliness and humbleness and meekness. Chapter 5, Walk in love. Chapter 6 goes into all the things that we are to do in, practically in the home and the family. And so the first three chapters is theology. The second three chapters are all about practical living. So the purpose is in the found in the very way that it's written. The first three chapters constitutes a doxology, praising God for revealing His infinite wisdom that's centered in the person of Christ. In Christ are found all the blessings that God has intended, not only for the Jewish nation, but for all nations. The church or the body of Christ was a mystery in the Old Testament that's now been revealed 
by Christ to his holy apostles and apostles that all mankind unconditionally are part of his family. So let's turn over to Ephesians chapter 3, and we'll look at that, where chapter 3, verses five and, 4, 5, and 6, and then we'll look at the practical part and try to bring some application to all the things I've talked about this morning. So this, this, um, uh, this doxology comes to sort of a close in chapter 3, that this mystery in the Old Testament has been revealed now to Christ's apostles. Verse 4 of chapter 3, By which when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as has now been revealed by the Spirit to the holy apostles and prophets, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs. So this is what the whole first three chapters about. The middle wall of separation has been annihilated. Covenants and doctrines and all those commandments, they have been done away with. Made one new man, Jew and Gentile alike. Look at verse chapter 2 and verse 11 with me. 2.11, therefore remember that you once Gentiles, that's no longer true in the flesh, who are called uncircumcised by what is called circumcision made by the flesh by made hands, that at that time you were without Christ, you were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, you were strangers of the covenants of promise, you had no hope, you were without God in the world, but look at this, but now, and look at this little phrase, now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. This is what the first three chapters is all about. So when it says God, before the foundation of the world, chose us, it's Jew and Gentile. It's the body of Christ. He's given us every spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ before the foundation of the world. God adopts us in Christ. God's bringing Jew and Gentile together in Christ. And the first three chapters is a praise and doxology to God's manifold and infinite wisdom of how he's orchestrated this throughout all eternity and now in time through Adam all the way up until the second Adam, Jesus. The second half of the, the book is practical application. How should this one new man now live out the Christian life? As a new formed community, believers are now commanded to strive for the unity that's been already given. Think about this in a Jew and Gentile mindset in the first century. These were people that you were alien from. You were strangers from them. They weren't a part of your covenants. They weren't a part of your promises. And now God's including them. You didn't belong to these things. These things you thought were only for the Jews, and now you get to be a part of them. And so in chapter 4, he says, I beseech you to walk worthy of the calling. And then he says, endeavoring or striving, spudazo is the Greek word, which is making every single, every effort you can to keep the unity of the Spirit. God has already provided this incredible unity between all people. When we come to Jesus Christ, God unifies us. God takes down every wall that separates us, all of our prejudice. You, we, could, we wouldn't have to teach critical race theory in America. All we should teach them is about Jesus because he eradicates all of it. We are all just one race of human beings, aren't we? And Christ breaks down every single barrier. I sat in my living room in Ireland. People who were former Catholics and people who were Church of Ireland who would have never sat on the same dining table ever unless they were having a fight with one another. 
and I saw God bring them together and they didn't see themselves as Catholics. They didn't see themselves as Protestants. They saw themselves as a part of the body of Christ. And that's what Paul is telling us to do now because of what he's done in those first three chapters. He's broken down walls. People who were far off were made nigh. You who were nigh have been brought even closer. You have this complete unity in, in Christ now. And it says, now keep this unity. So the chapter 4, 5, and 6 tells us how to practically live out our Christian faith. Now believers understand that there's one new man. We're instructed then to put off the old man, put off all of his practice, and put on the new man, which is created in the image of Christ. Ephesians 4.20. I'll just read it here. But you have not so learned Christ as you have heard him and been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning the former conversation the old man, which is corrupt according to deceitful lust, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind in the one who's been created in the image of Christ. So we put on this new man because he's created like Christ, the one who created us anew. This letter was written to a church and to be circulated among the other churches to help them understand that we've all been incorporated into one body, Jew and Gentile. This was not the invention of the apostles. It was not God's failure to work in Israel Rather, the corporate election of both Jew and Gentile was divinely chosen in the person of Christ before the world began. According to Paul, we are now living in the fullness of time. The fullness of time and all these mysteries and the dispensation is come to pass and we are living in the most blessed time ever. Because the Gentiles lacked spiritual heritage that their Jewish brethren lacked, this was written to us today as well that as God's people, we should, we should appreciate the dignity, the wisdom, the knowledge and the foresight of God to include us in His eternal plan. Paul wants us to understand all the implications of our, our heavenly calling, that God is so worthy and that our responsibilities are so great to, to live a life that's worthy of what He's done for us. As Gentiles, we need to be reminded that we are heirs of God, that we have been adopted into His family, that God now views us as His purchased possession, redeemed and forgiven through His blood, sealed by the Holy Spirit in the accordance of the riches of His grace that He lavished upon us in Christ. You think about all the blessings that God has graced and lavished upon you. They are all found in the person of Jesus. Today, what can we take away? What can we learn afresh? Well, as we take the Lord's Supper, we can practically commit our lives to Christ, the one who has called us unto him through our Savior and through the gospel. Our hearts today as we take the Lord's Supper should be overwhelmed as we bless God and bend our knees before Him and say, Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. We should strive for unity in North Valley Bible Church, the universal church. We should strive for unity with believers outside of our fellowship. That should be our goal, is to work together with people who love Jesus and love God's word. There's the universal church that we are seeing here. Finally, we need to grow in Christ's likeness 
and live in a community of committed believers till we grow in the fullness and the stature and the likeness of Jesus Christ himself. The church is God's body for us to mature. God does not design us to mature spiritually apart from the local church. The local church is integral in our spiritual growth and development. That's where your gifts are utilized, and that's where other people's gifts are used to sharpen and perfect you. I want to just read one passage that will back up what I'm saying. You are no longer children, tossed to and fro, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery and the cunning and craftiness and the deceitful plotting of men. But now you should speak the truth in love. You may grow up in him in all things who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by which every part supplies, according to the affecting working by which every part does its share, causes the growth of the body to edify itself in love. This is a beautiful, beautiful book, and I look forward to us getting into it paragraph by paragraph. But I think now that we have an overall look and view of the book, we can see how each sentence, each paragraph, each chapter fits together as a whole. So let's remember these things this morning as we partake of the Lord's Supper. So I'm going to pray and then I'm going to...